Welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am Alberto Ligi, your host from London. And as our regular listeners know, the purpose of the Do One Better podcast is to inspire listeners to be more philanthropic and act sustainably and embrace social entrepreneurship. And before we kick things off, if you're able to press that button and subscribe, that would be very much appreciated. And today it's my pleasure to welcome someone whom I've known for quite a few years, who I consider a friend. Uh, his name's Stephen White, and he is the Clark, the CEO of the Cooper's Livery Company. And today we're going to talk about the Cooper's Livery Company and livery companies in general, which are a topic that many people outside of the UK have not heard about, but they focus on three things, fellowship, charitable work, and business activity. And Stephen's going to shed uh, quite a bit of light on these things particularly on the charitable side. So, Stephen, welcome on board. Thank you very much, Alberto. Good to be with you. Great. So tell me, what's it, what's it like to be the clerk at the Cooper's Livery Company, and what does the Cooper's Livery Company do? Well, first of all, you know, it's been a sort of a long-held ambition of mine to be, uh, you know, the clerk, or as we call it, this chief executive, but clerk is an, an historical title to the role. And, you know, having worked in a, a previous livery company at the Cloth Workers as their director of finance, this became a sort of the natural progression for me. And so it's a great honor because these companies are, they're unusual companies in the sense that they are granted a, a royal charter many hundreds of years ago by the the sovereign of the time. And that gave them certain privileges to protect the trades that they were responsible for in London, particularly in London at that time. So they, they controlled the uh, the quality of the product. They uh, disciplined people who were not you know, proper tradesmen. And they also, most importantly, and this leads to what you said about um, the charitable aspects, they looked after members of their trade who came across you know, hard times. For example, they got badly injured or taken badly ill. They would look after them and provide the almshouses, which uh, are still scattered around the UK to, to this day, and they provided funds for those to help people come on hard times. So to be the CEO clerk of that, to me, is, is a great honour. The Coopers, it's been around for a little while, let's say. I, I understand the twelve late 1200s. Yeah, the earliest mention of the company was uh, contained in the record of the Mayor's Court, which was held in 1298. And there were, I think, three Coopers were apparently committed to jail, in fact, for contempt of the King and the Mayor at that time. And that was the very first uh, mention of the term Cooper. I'm sure you'll know that, you know, in my in my previous life, I was a, a, a naval officer. And of course, the Navy had a very strong link with uh, the Cooper in trade because everything we transported it was was done in wooden barrels it could be salt it could be flour you know anything literally so there was a huge uh, a, a very great connection between the navy and the, you know, the cask building industry the whole cooper in trade really covers uh, what is effectively a four-year apprenticeship and it still remains that to this very day so four years to train somebody to build a wooden cask and they can be various sizes they can you know be literally one foot high to these enormous uh, hogshead type uh, casts which contain you know huge amounts of beer or whatever it is um so these things are manually hollowed out by these craftsmen and 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 of course bent into the distinctive shape with um and held in place by these metal staves that they create so that whole process you know is a very skilled process uses american oak now um, and of course, to keep those watertight, you know, they have to be made to very exact standards because any any flaw in the water, and of course, the thing will leak. 
What does the livery company world look like today? How many livery companies are there? How closely aligned are you? Yeah, well, there's 110 livery companies. Um, I think since the 70s, there's been something like 30-odd, 30-plus livery company new ones formed. So that, so it's not a dying industry by any stage. A lot of people, when they talk about the livery companies, they think um, that they're quite, you know, they're, they're historical and therefore they're sort of set in history. But the truth is, actually, there are a number of brand new livery companies um, being formed. For example, the World Traders is a is a good one that's been you know, fairly newly set up. We have about 350 members in our company. Um, some companies have 700 plus, depends on their size. But most are active. We, we, we appeal to quite a wide range um, from about the 30s, early age, you know, age of 30 to anything up to 70. So it covers a huge range of, of professions and people. And in the past, whereas we used to uh, try and keep our membership to the trade that we were responsible for, these days you'll find most livery companies try and appeal to anyone from any walk of life. If they, they, there's different ways they can enter the company. How does one uh, become a member or uh, a fellow? Or Well, you can either, as I say, you can still um, become a, a member through you know, family uh, ties, um, but uh, invariably you'll be referred um, these days. So you'll find that if a, a company is, say, short of expertise, for example, it might be short of, um, finance specialists or insurance specialists or property specialists, then it will go out looking for those people and uh, it will use its its own personnel to you know vet people to make sure that they are appropriate sort of people who come into the company because some of these companies are handling you know significant property assets or significant investment assets and they need to be able to control that properly with the right expertise. So that's why they're, like any company, they're looking for, you know, a board that has um, the right uh, breadth of experience to control. The members are involved in, I guess, the setting the direction of the livery company or, or handling its affairs in certain ways? Basically, the way um, any, any company works, at its, at, you know, the CEO, like in any company, is running the day-to-day -day business of the company and effectively carries out the wishes of, uh, we call it the court, uh, but a business would call it, you know, the board of directors. But it's the same, some sort of thing. Most, most, most courts are about eighteen to twenty-ish members. Um, those, those guys are usually the senior members of the company. They're, as I say, they're from different walks of life, and they meet on a uh, maybe a monthly or by, you know, every two months type basis. And their role will be to assess the business as it's going on. So that's the CEO's reporting to the company saying. Um, you know, whatever, you know, we've, property assets are doing this and the investments are doing this. Um, and then that court will make a decision, say, we would like to do A, B and C in the next year. And the CEO's role is to make sure that, that, is, that those wishes are carried out. So just like any business in that way, we, we function in exactly the same way from that point of view. Perfect. Just to be perfectly clear, your board is male and female, right? Yeah, you're right. I mean, they, they used to be, um, I think, pre uh, pre nineties, uh, most most of the livery companies were all male, but um, that's been changed significantly now. So you'll find, I think, pretty much with that exception, uh, all the companies are now have got females, you know, on on their boards or at least in their membership. And tell me a little bit about the uh, so again the three the three pillars, as it were, fellowship, charitable work, and and business. Tell me a little bit about the charitable side um, of livery companies in general 
uh, and also of the Coopers. A lot of people don't know that the livery companies in the UK are probably one of the largest um, charitable donors in, in the country. They, uh, I think it's something like £75 million is donated to charity annually by all of those livery companies I mentioned, the 110. So that's a significant amount of money. It's given every year um, by the companies uh, to a wide range of charities. I mean, each company may have you know, its own particular um, specialised charities that it favours. Uh, most of them are, are UK-based. Not many, I don't think, give money abroad, but there, are, may, there may be some cases where they do, but a lot of them focus on the UK. Um, a lot of companies will be f- focusing on their own trade if it's still a live trade. So, for example, our trade is live, uh, or just, just about live in, in, in England. Uh, it's very live in Scotland, um, but we are trying to trying to put some life into the trade in, in England as we speak. Um, for those companies that trade isn't live, then they tend to focus on you know a particular charity like maybe the blind or, or the deaf or something like that, which they there may have been some historical reason why they decided to do that. So you will find that companies will have maybe two or three that they annually sponsor, you know, give money to. But then most of the livery companies were on their website will also allow for anyone to uh, apply for a grant. Um, and that, that, again, each company will have limits on how much money they'll give for the, that type of grant. Um, but, you know, a- anyone can apply. And that that's, those, those applications are, um, you know, discussed by a, a special charity committee. We have ours and all the other companies have theirs as well. And then a decision is made and, um, you know, and, and that's the way the companies operate. So the constant um, giving is a big part of the function of, of all livery companies. And, and indeed, you know, um, it's very important to our, um, but to the Coopers, because our motto is love as brethren, which really means that, you know, and that's the, the that's the motto of our school that we support as well, um, because we believe it's very important. You know, the fellowship of people and looking after people, whether they're you know, in having bad times or good times, is vital for the growth of society. Who, um, what causes besides your trade do you focus on, charitably speaking? Are there specific uh, schools or or themes that uh, that are of particular interest to the Coopers? Yeah, so we have two schools that we we focus on. We have uh, the Coopers and Coburn School, which is in Upminster. Um, we support them very strongly and his, you know, very strong historical links uh, to that school. Um, we also have Strode College, um, and that's in, in, in Egham, in Surrey, and we also support them very strongly as well. So those are two schools that we support. And then, you know, as I say, we do a lot of charitable work within the industry itself and within the Cooper's trade, and then, and then really, apart from that, we tend to um, do uh, give a number of ad hoc grants to various um, uh, people that have applied to us for for money. Mm-hmm. And what does it look like when you're supporting uh, when you're supporting charitably uh, members of the trade? Is that in terms of making apprenticeships possible, or what does it look like? Well, so, I mean, you know, we have um, uh, in UK and well, so in England at the moment, we only have one master Cooper uh, and, and by that master, that's a person that can actually train uh, other people. So there's only one master Cooper in, in England. Um, there are a number of other Coopers around, but they are not masters in, because they haven't trained an apprentice. So what we try to do is we try to um, sponsor 
uh, apprentices um, so that they, you know, can then go on and hopefully find, found their own business uh, and then and create a, you know, create a sort of a, um, a, a business for themselves in, in the trade, which, and that's where, that's where the growth is going to be for the future. Equally, we, we might provide funds to any cooperage uh, out there that where you know, who are employing coopers. Uh, um, and then finally, we're sort of trying to, we help sponsor some work on, um, you know, the future of the Cooper trade in terms of, um, you know, what can be done for the future? Can, how can how can that grow? So we're constantly looking at ways to try and enhance and support any activity that um, you know gives a future to the Cooper trade, uh, particularly at this very important time when, you know, in England it could die out unless it's really given you know, an active shot in the, in the arm, because unfortunately, you know, with the growth of aluminium casks, uh, um, which are obviously cheaper to make, um, like everything, they, they, they tend to push out the more superior item in terms of its taste that it gives to the, the wine or beer. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're fighting that all the time. But as uh, there is a, there is a, there is a slight growing uh, feeling that actually now with the, with the birth of microbreweries, with the birth of the wine industry in England, um, then there might be some hope that there will be a demand, a greater demand for the Cooper trade. So we keep active links with people like the distillers. We have a very active link with um, our Scottish um, uh, partners uh, in the Cooper trade because the Cooper trade is very active in Scotland because of the whiskey trade, um, because they use um, obviously barrels up there. So we, we're constantly keeping and monitoring the situation, not only in the UK, but also abroad and just seeing where the movements are and where we can perhaps, you know, um, best um, supply funds or even or some form of mentorship, which is another good thing we can offer. You know, and that mentorship can come in any form. It can either come in forms of um, uh, of, of Cooper in itself, but also just general business mentorship as well. Mm-hmm. And. As you mentioned, I, I, in England, the uh, particularly sparkling wines are taking off like wildfire, aren't they? I mean, there's just uh, yes, some wonderful, high-quality sparkling wines that are uh, rivaling that that you can find on uh, on the continent. Yes, I mean this is great. Um, you know, we're, we're very it's, it's an exciting time to, to, to witness, and you and I are funding some of these wines are you know, uh, I'm being on, honoured and recognised now throughout the world. So that's a great um, impetus to to not only the UK's sort of export market, but also in terms of our, you know, uh, what we can provide to the wine trade in terms of, you know, whether they want to put their wine in, in casks, because it's a cask that really gives, you know, take a Chardonnay, what gives it that lovely oaky taste is the cask itself. So um, it's, um, it, it's really whether... The industries now can turn to casks again to to, to vitalise the taste of their product, and that's that, that's something we're, as I say, monitoring all the time. Is there much by way of collaboration and engagement in between the different livery companies? These hundred ten livery companies that are running around. Do you um, do you communicate much with each other, and do you collaborate much on different things? Absolutely. I mean, all the time. We we have effectively three. Uh, major collaborations in the livery world. There's what we call the Great Twelve collaboration, and these are the uh, historically back in the sort of the 16th century, the companies were put into order of their wealth, um, and so the the top 12 were called the Great Twelve, and they were the most wealthiest companies at that, at that time, that point in history. Now those that 
numerical order continues to this very day. So you, you'll find the Coopers is was was judged as 36th in mm-hmm. the order at that time. That may or may not reflect our true status today. Uh, and indeed, you'll find that some of the Great Twelve may or may not now belong to realistically in the Great Twelve because Cooper, some com- companies may have overtaken them in, in financially. But the point is, they all had this. Um, they were, you know, they were put into this seniority or wealth order, and then the Great Twelve effectively formed a, a strong alliance amongst themselves. They regard themselves as being the best of the best, um, and so they tend to collaborate with each other and they have a separate a separate way of, of doing business with each other and they have regular meetings where their clerks or CEOs meet. Um, and then those companies that have a hall but are not the great 12, so that includes the Cooper's company, there, there was a set, another tranche of meetings between those companies. Um, and then the final tranche of, of, of companies, that those that have no halls at all, and that's, that's the majority because only 36 companies have halls mm-hmm. out of the 110. The majority that don't have halls they have another group and they all meet together. And you'll find that the, the, from the fellowship point of view, where they all meet, you know, have dinners together and whatever, those 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 fellowship aspects tend to gain keeping those tranches. Um, so that's that's the way it's sort of divided and, and that's the way that business is done as well. Because, you know, you meet, you'll go to a dinner and you'll meet somebody and you'll be able to maybe discuss business at the table, which is, you know, it's your old-fashioned way of doing business, but it's a very effective way of um, finding out new things or maybe you might sit next to somebody from a charity who might say they, they're looking for some funding. I mean, all sorts of things can spill out of these um, dinners. So they're not just about you know eating and, and, and being merry, but they're about really doing the business as well. And you have this wonderful Cooper's Hall that I was privileged to get an invite to for lunch not that long ago. Wonderful setting, beautiful, great food as well, and wonderful conversation. Tell me a little bit about Cooper's Hall and its social aspects and how it works. Cooper's Hall is not far from Liverpool Street Station in, in the city of London. So it's in, in a, a lovely position, very central. It's a pre-Georgian townhouse. It's actually one of, it sits in a, one of these lovely old London squares called Devonshire Square in London. And what I like about these beautiful squares is that, you know, London is, this metropolis is buzzing around you. But when you go into these squares, there's this sort of lovely silence that meets you, and um, and and so that's where we are. We're in this little enclave of quiet, but around us, we're surrounded now by all the tall buildings of the city, um, in one in, one, in sort of in face of the company. But you've got these sort of old houses, quaint old houses, sort of sitting at the back of the square. Um, and uh, as I say, uh, and so it's a it's an old wooden frame building, actually a timber frame building. So it's uh, it dates, as I say, right back to pre-Georgian times. We've owned the the hall since um, the Second World War, because our previous hall was destroyed in the in the Second World War. So we've been here since the 50s. It's a four-floor hall with a basement. We currently let it out to a, a charity called Springboard, the top two floors, and their their role is to you know to enliven the the catering trade. And we occupy the bottom two floors um, for our meeting room and the boardroom, and then the offices. So it's a, and then we let out the hall. Um, those those sort of function areas, we let those out on a regular basis to other companies who want to use the facilities for meetings or, you know, for, for dinners or lunches, because it's a beautiful place just to meet and, and have a quiet place to, you know, contemplate and to maybe do business away from your normal 
place of work. Sounds wonderful. I mean, there's a lot of tradition, but also there's been some change. What's the most striking change uh, that you're seeing now or that you expect to see in the next uh, few years? Is, is it, are things uh, evolving in a specific way? I think companies are, you know, you, I'm sure you know, Alberto, there's been quite a lot of criticism um, in, in, in UK about um, the role of livery companies. And that's primarily because, because I think livery companies probably guilty a wee bit of themselves of being a little bit secretive and it's purely because uh, by dint of their royal charter which uh, again you know is quite unique in london they don't have to declare their uh, accounts to companies house which um, obviously most companies do and i suppose um people you know regard that with suspicion as to why that is the reality is that the companies don't really want to brag about what they do in terms of the charity so i think a lot of people through this um, sort, of, sort of ignorance of, of uh, and lack of information, frankly, have just not been aware about what these companies do uh, for charity and what they do for the historical aspects of the city of London. For example, you know they vote the older men um, of this of the Corporation of London. They vote for the um, the original Lord Mayor, not the not the sort of the um, the one that's in town hall, but you know the the old original Lord Mayor. Um, so they, they play a very vital part in the political structure of London, um, and and that will I think that will continue going forward. Um, that's historical aspect. But in terms of the, the business, I think the future of delivery companies is that they're going to broaden their base, their membership base, as much as possible. They will probably start being a little bit more open about what they do. Um, we've mentioned that one company has already released its accounts to. The public i think they did that just as a you know to indicate that they're not secretive and I, th- I think you may find in the future that companies may decide to do that and so they will continue to um be more proactive in in in, in sort of spreading the, the word about what they do i think that's that's going to be imperative in the next five to ten years and and just continue to play a, a bigger part in the charitable aspects of, the, of their business as they can i think that those are the the key things how did you get into all of this? How did you get into the companies? Because, uh, I mean, that's how we met when you were the uh, finance director at the Cloth Workers uh, quite a few years back. Your early days were in the Navy for a very long time, actually. How did you end up in the, um, in the livery company world? I've always been interested in, in history anyway, particularly, you know, of, my, of, of England. It's been uh, it's steeped in, in great history. And uh, so I suppose I was attracted to that aspect um, when I joined the Royal Navy with its long traditions. And then when I um, served in the Royal Navy, of course, we, we came into contact with the livery companies because most livery companies have a very strong connection with all the forces, be it Army, Navy or Air Force, because of their historical linkages so you'll find virtually every livery company will have affiliations we have affiliations with 99 squadron the RAF. we have affiliations with uh, hms president uh, which is a, a sort of a concrete you know naval base in london um so i came across livery companies um when i was serving on ships and we occasionally invited those livery companies on board for a day out at sea that was my first um, inclination of what they were doing. And, of course, they told us about what they did. And I, I was quite attracted to this idea of philanthropy and, 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 and caring for people and giving, giving money to help other people who had come across hard times. And that, that stayed with me. Um, so when I left the Navy, I first of all went into education because that was another strong interest I had. And that, but I sort of felt this pull back towards 
philanthropy and, and, and really giving back. I think that's what most people join the livery companies for because they've, you know, they've had a successful career and then what they want to do is just give back to society. And that's a strong, overwhelming feeling. And as I say that, again, I, I, you know, that our, our love as brethren motto supports that. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's basically loving your, you know, the people that you're with, you know, your society trying to put something back into that society that so you're not always taken out, you're putting it back. So that, that's really what um, attracted me to it. And, and so that for me, this is a natural, I suppose, you know, completion of the circle, really, in a way. And there's still a strong armed forces context anyways, right? I mean, many executives that I meet from the livery company world are formerly army or navy or air force yeah absolutely and i think when most you know majority of livery companies recruit uh its senior staff they tend to favor uh armed forces personnel because of those linkages that we just mentioned because they tend to find that the sort of people that understand their traditions and the way they do things traditionally the old sort of things of gentlemanly behavior um all those lovely old traditions that tend to be understood better by forces personnel perhaps maybe uh, than maybe uh, others and i think they that's why you'll find a majority of senior members of livery companies tend to be ex-forces personnel and it's a it's a known you know it's a known person that they go for that link is it's very strong uh, throughout the companies do you uh, do you visit many ships now uh, no i haven't been on a, on a ship for some time and obviously i have very you know many friends in the navy that i keep in contact with but i haven't, I haven't been on a ship for a while in fact one of the things one of the first things i want to try and do is arrange a you know some sort of uh, ship uh, visit for the members of the cooper's company so they can actually understand my background a bit more because um you know it, but sadly you know the navy that i joined has no longer the same size i mean i joined with something like 70 odd you know warships it's now i think i think i heard the last count was 19 it's um decreasing in size significantly so getting a a ship visit is going to become harder and harder i think these days you have a fascinating career and i think what you do now is really interesting and you combine both the uh, the navy bit the education the philanthropy the livery company executive what's the key takeaway for our listeners bearing in mind that we really want to encourage people to be philanthropic and act sustainably and, and embrace social entrepreneurship out of all your years that you've been doing these sort of fascinating, diverse roles, what's a key takeaway that you'd love for our audience to keep in mind after the podcast? To me, it's some, it is summarized in that motto, lovers, brethren. I, I think the key takeaway for me is, is we, I think generally as a society, and you read the papers more, you know, every day, and I despair at the way we tend to be overtaken by consumerism, greed, um, you know, wealth. You, you, you read about so many phenomenally wealthy people, some of whom have, you know, the GDP of the size of a country. Um, I would like to see more of that money spread around the world to help those that are in, in great need. Uh, I think it's shocking that in today's world, you can walk into cities like London, New York, Paris, and find people on the streets in tents sleeping on i just find that i can't i find that so difficult to square away in a city which also has multi-millionaires billionaires living it just doesn't seem right to me and i think this whole lovers brethren concept is give back to society as much as you can not just not just a small percentage but give it give back 
a significant amount of what you can. If you've got 10 houses, why do you need 10 houses? Give back eight of them. You know, I just, I just find that is something. I think the younger today are beginning to understand that more and more, which is why you're getting things, people like, you know, Extinction Rebellion coming up because people want to care more about the planet and, and they're moving away from this consumerism and greed that we all seem to have gripped in the West. And, you know, on my travels abroad, I've always seen that the happiest people invariably are the ones with, with the, least, the least amount of money. And it, and it just, I find it really, it, it just shocks me at times. And so for me, touching base with that here, uh, this motto as love of brethren, it resonates through me so strongly that um, it's making me change my whole view on, on the way I've conducted life so far and the way I want to continue living for the future. Oh, it's great that you're speaking from, uh, from the heart. If somebody were interested in finding out more about the Cooper Slivery Company, possibly joining, what's the best way? What's the, is there a website? Uh, is there a particular email address that you'd recommend they, uh, they take a look at? So the website is um, www.coopers-hall.co.uk. If they want to email, email me personally, I'm very happy to do so. I am uh, I'm the clerk at uh, coopers-hall.co.uk. But the website is probably the best place to start first because, you know, the, the whole story of the, the company and its history and its charitable work and, and its gallery of pictures and things like that, that's all on there. So that's where the story starts. And then I think if someone remains interested, then they can always contact me and ask for further information. Great. And it is open to everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The more the merrier. Stephen, thank you very much for joining us today on the Do One Better podcast. It really has been a pleasure speaking with you. And, uh, and it's good to hear about the charitable work you're doing and about the livery company world in general, which is something that many, many people are just not familiar with at all, uh, particularly outside of the UK. So you've shed some light on it and it's very useful for everybody. Thanks very much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. And thank you very much, Alberto, for giving me the, the chance to explain a little bit more about these uh, wonderful companies. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic to think more about sustainability and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better. Mm -hmm.